This is Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. Follow the outrage on Twitter at CFRA Ottawa. Give it to me, I'm worth it. Is it worth it to complain about bottles being taken from your recycling? I got to say, I'm a little bit puzzled. Hello, welcome to the show. Brian Lilly with you tonight. Um, It looks beautiful out and it's still freezing cold. I don't know about you. Are you like me? Are you maybe not freezing cold, but the way it looks outside does not match the temperature. 10 degrees is as warm as it got today. And overnight, overnight it's going back down below zero. There was snow south of the city today. Again, where's my global warming? I just want a little bit of global warming. Just enough to take the chill off me. But it does look nice outside as the the people across the, the way in the the gym continue to exercise. They'll exercise and taunt me all night. I saw lots of people exercising on the drive-in. That's what made me think about this. The fact that the weather is not matching what it looks like outside. I was driving in along the Rideau Canal. And if you never take that drive into downtown, you should. Even if you have no reason to be here, just don't do it at rush hour. The drive-in along the canal is one of Ottawa's true gems. Just beautiful. And all these people out running and being active and physical. And I'm sitting in my car. Oh, well, it's, uh, but, but I kept thinking, it's not that warm out. These people, they don't have enough clothes on. I want to talk in a minute about uh, why oil is now such a, a bad word, a bad thing in this country. But first, I, I got to do a mini rant. Do you understand why this woman is complaining? I don't know who she is, but I know the, I know the neighborhood of Manor Park. Well, used to live up there once upon a time. And she's complaining about bottles being taken out of her recycling. Well, you put them in the recycling. But apparently the city can fine you $250 for taking bottles out and cans out that can then be returned for money. I have people going through the neighborhood, my neighborhood, all the time. They go around in trucks. They're called metal recyclers. They look for anything that they can take. This is not a bad thing. But there she is. You heard her on the news saying... I'm really tired of this. I would like the people that really need the money to go through the neighborhood by foot or by bicycle. I do not feel it is right for others to come from all over the city through my neighborhood just because they think it is wealthy. But you're just going to profile the poor there. You can only come on foot or bicycle, wander through Manor Park. But if you're in a car... You're too wealthy to pick up a can. A little odd. Maybe it's just me. Now, today, there's a couple of stories all coming together. One very local related to the University of Ottawa, one related to our prime minister, and one related to the premier of Alberta. And it goes to this constant push by people to denigrate oil. Oil is something that has helped make our modern life. I'm standing here, and I've I've got... uh, a computer in front of me, there's oil that helped make that. I've got the phone in front of me, oil helped make that. There's a TV, oil helped make that. There's the microphone. I'm sure there's some kind of oil byproduct somewhere in there. You can go through your house and try and find the, the products that, that don't have oil related to them. Or 
were not transported by oil. Good luck finding them. Oil helps drive our modern life, and we've found ways to make it um, cleaner. We've found ways to use it more efficiently, so we use less of it. We've found ways to extract it in an, an environmentally sensitive way. But some people say that's still not enough. They, they just want it gone. So did you hear about the University of Ottawa divesting themselves of oil? That's right. The University of Ottawa's Board of Governors has decided that they will adopt a plan to see the school reduce the carbon footprint of its investment portfolio by 30% by 2030. Board Chairman Robert Giroux says the decision, will follow, which followed 18 months of consultations, is in line with Canada's national climate commitment. Basically, they're going to divest themselves of holdings in fossil fuel companies. This is part of saying this is a bad industry. We don't like this industry. Ontario's economy, by the way, we may not have oil anymore, although we used to out in Sarnia and Petrolia. We used to have oil in this, in this province. We just didn't have the massive fields that they do in Alberta and Saskatchewan. But this province, a good part of our wealth comes from Industries related to oil, like the auto industry. How many thousands of good-paying jobs are the result of the auto industry? And I'm not talking about the, the subsidized electric vehicles. We'll get to that later in the program. We had a national crisis in 2008, 2009, when we had to bail out the auto industry. The government of Canada took ownership stakes in Chrysler and General Motors to save jobs. Now, we have our university saying, yeah, this is bad. Then we've got a a prime minister that refuses to get behind a major industry, treating it as if it's a leper. And yet, Justin Trudeau took his entire cabinet to Kananaskis, Alberta, because he says, well, the economy's hurting. Why is the economy hurting? Because the oil industry is hurting. He's questioned about that twice today. Here's one of those clips. James Wood from the Calgary Herald. You noted that you came to Alberta because of the economic situation of the province. Um, Over the last three days, has anything been accomplished that would make a difference to the Albertans who are feeling the effects of the the poor economy at the moment? Well, uh, the work we are doing is all about delivering a government that uh, Canadians can uh, have a greater degree of trust in Uh, Trust to build a strong economy, trust to protect the environment, uh, trust to create opportunities for uh, future generations to get good jobs uh, and to prosper. Uh, We uh, are entirely focused on how we're going to help uh, Canadians right across the country, but uh, particularly here in Alberta, because that's where we are right now, uh, to build and grow in ways that are going to benefit. That's uh, what we... Uh, discussed today in general terms and in specific terms uh, will have positive impacts here in Alberta and elsewhere across the country. Sorry, and are there specific terms of actions you are considering that would uh, be a benefit to Alberta at this point? We continue to monitor uh, the situation around employment numbers. We continue to be uh, very uh, aware that one of the fundamental responsibilities of any government is to get our resources to market, uh, but 
The way to do that in the 21st century is to make sure that it's done responsibly, sustainably, uh, in partnership with Indigenous Canadians and with uh, communities uh, affected by various projects. Uh, and uh, that work of building those relationships, of setting in a place those processes uh, that will allow for that is uh, what we're continuing to do. Primary job of the government is to get products to market. And yet, today, from the Privy Council office, we find out His Excellency the Governor-General in Council on the recommendation of the Minister of Natural Resources to pursuant to section, uh, subsection 52.7 of the National Energy, Energy Board Act further extends by three months the time limit extended by the Minister under that subsection for the Board to prepare and submit to the Minister and make public a report in respect of the Energy East project proposed by Energy East Pipeline Limited and TransCanada Pipelines Limited. They extended two different pipelines today, the review process, by months. This is a guy who keeps saying he only wants to be a referee, and yet he's a referee that keeps stopping the shot from being taken. That's all Justin Trudeau's doing, as he is he and his government continue to run down an industry that's vital for the country. Let's play another clip of Trudeau running off at the mouth. He's asked specifically about pipelines and what's changing because remember just yesterday Jim Carr his natural resources minister before we found out he extended the pipelines was saying we're we're looking to see how we can speed things up on that subject of pipelines it's come up a lot uh, during these three days would you be open to Northern Gateway if it took another route for example one that ended in Prince Rupert instead of Kitimat I'm not going to uh, speculate on hypothetical routes. Uh, what I will say is the Great Bear Rainforest is no place uh, for a pipeline, for a, a crude pipeline. Can you tell me what's changing your thinking on pipelines? Uh, there is no changing on my thinking. Uh, my thinking has always been that uh, we need to get our resources to market, but we need to do that uh, in responsible, sustainable, uh, thoughtful ways. The previous government uh, refused to understand that uh, you cannot separate what's good for the environment and what's good for the economy. The Canadians demand oh, uh, that blah, we build a blah, stronger blah, economy blah, while blah, protecting blah, the environment blah, blah, at the same time. Blah, blah. Get, get uh, rid of him. I can't take his blah, 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 bull crap anymore. He's talking about a government as if the, the Harper government just rubber stamp pipelines. The reason that we don't have more pipelines, going, whether it's Northern Gateway or Energy East or all these things is that they had a process, an environmental review process. The Northern Gateway one took more than two years, came out, they said, here's 209 conditions. You meet these conditions, you can have the pipeline. Trudeau shut it down by saying, no tankers off the BC coast. Now he's stopping the West to East pipeline as well. And then you've got the Premier of Alberta, Rachel Notley. She's going down to Washington, and she's going down to try and convince the Americans that Canada is good on climate change and therefore accept our oil. Alberta is not the Alberta that they thought of a year ago or two years ago or three years ago. And the more we can do that, the more that helps us uh, finding new markets around the world. Uh Uh-huh. Here's the simple fact. The Americans did not turn down Keystone XL because of climate change or because of environmental considerations or because they thought Canada was an environmental laggard. I mean, for goodness sakes, they import oil from Venezuela and Saudi Arabia, just as we do. 
They said no to Keystone XL because that would have made it easier for their biggest competitor, Canada, to displace American oil at a cheaper price. That's why they said no. A fact pointed out by my nemesis, Nahid Nenshi, the mayor of Calgary, when he was speaking at Ottawa City Hall, what, a month ago? That's the reality. We have people running around telling lies about one of our main industries all the time and running it down. And without this industry, our economy is much poorer. Our government is much poorer. There are thousands of Canadians that are out of work. It's time for the silliness, the petty politics to stop. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. Lots more to come. Joe Warmington in about 15 minutes' time on fighting back against terrorists. Next, why Donald Trump is going to work harder to win to drive celebrities into Canada. This is Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. Get some FaceTime with Brian. Join the resistance at Facebook.com slash 580CFRA. Five states with primaries tonight. The never-ending race to decide who gets to be president. And then once this is settled, guess what? Then the Republicans and Democrats go at each other. Woo-wee, even more. Yeah. Yeah, baby. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be huge. So tonight, Hillary Clinton is likely to uh, come within a few delegates of securing the nomination for the Democrats. But that doesn't stop Bernie Sanders from trying to inspire his people. Philadelphia in Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania is one of the places holding uh, primaries today. And he told his people, you've got to dare to dream. Do not accept the options that the establishment offers you. Think bigger than that. Well, speaking of establishment, Hillary Clinton's just basically saying, uh, Bernie, time to drop out. She was on uh, MSNBC's town hall last night, or MSLSD, as Mark Levin likes to call it, because they're a little, you know, spacey over there. And... um, She was asked specifically, is it time for Sanders to drop out? I have the greatest respect for Senator Sanders, but really what he and his supporters are now saying just doesn't add up. I have 2.7 million more votes than he has. I have more than 250 more pledged delegates. You have an indictment hanging over your head. I think you should drop out. Now to the the part that I teased earlier. Donald Trump... this happens every election. And I did a piece a little while ago. I said, look, I uh, you know, did it up for the rebel.media. I said, Americans, stop threatening to come to Canada if your candidate doesn't win. You want to move to Canada? Great. We love you. We'll have you. You're our neighbors. You're good people. But don't threaten to come to Canada if your candidate wins or doesn't win or what have you. So Lena Dunham is the latest celebrity to threaten to move to Canada. Now, if you're saying Lena who, then you're a sane person. And if you know who Lena Dunham is, then, well, I do. That says something about you. This is a a woman who uh, appears nude on her TV show called Girls on HBO. 
just for the sake of it. She shocks just for the sake of it. It is a horrible show. It gets horrible ratings, but it's loved by all the right people. So it gets talked about, right? It's big in pop culture. It's amazing that often the shows that get talked about by all the right people are not actually that popular. So Donald Trump is asked about this this morning while appearing by phone on Fox and Friends in New York. And he said, you know what, I got a message for these people. Don't let the door hit you on the way out, especially someone like Lena Dunham. Well, she's a B actor and, you know, has no, you know, mojo. All right. He's correct on that. But for all you Trump fans out there, I mean, you know that I've not been a fan of him. But now because he she's saying she'll move to Canada if if Trump wins, I'm really worried. But listen to Trump's reaction to it. Now I have to get elected because I'll be doing a great service to our country. I have to. Now it's much more important. In fact, I'll immediately get off this call and start campaigning right now. If I was in the United States, that might make me vote for Trump to get rid of Lena Dunham. But I live in Canada, and we can't be saddled with this woman. Isn't it bad enough that we've got Randy Quaid, the crazy Quaid brother, the guy that claimed refugee status in Canada because he thought star whackers were out to get him? Can we really afford more crazy American celebrities? We'll see how it turns out. Of course, they rarely come. Alec Baldwin in 2000 said if that George W. Bush guy wins, he was moving to Canada. Never did it. Many people have said it. Never done it. And by the way, Baldwin, the Republicans in Florida even bought him a bus ticket to Montreal. He didn't show up. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. When we come back, Joe Warmington on what we should be doing to fight back against the terrorist thugs that killed John Ridsdale. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. News Talk 580 CFRA. In a world gone mad, there must be resistance. You're listening to Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. I always say Joe Warmington is one of my favorite reporters because he's the old-fashioned gumshoe type that gets out there. He's like, um, as I say, he's like Gary Dimmick at the, at the Citizen. Um, goes out, talks to people, walks the streets, gets a sense. And Joe Warmington's also a no-nonsense, common-sense type of man. His latest piece in the Toronto Sun, and I'm about to tweet it out. It, it, the headline reads, PM should lead charge to wipe out killer terrorists. Joe, last night I just started raging against what the, the reaction, and, and it's not that I have trouble with Trudeau's words. He called them terrorists. I appreciate that. He said he's outraged. I appreciate that. But I'm just tired of politicians being outraged, and I want action, and I think we should be sending in JTF2 to mess these guys up. Where are right. you at? Well, that's what I said a month ago when I called him my dad uh, when he was at the White House. You notice he didn't call them uh, Islamic or Muslim terrorists, though. No, and, well, he never, he never will, and yeah, I guess I've given up on that. Yeah, so, you know, he didn't mention that these guys are flying the ISIS flag now. He didn't mention that there's only about three or four hundred of them, and that kidnapping is their game. That's what they do. He didn't mention that he has on speed dial the president of the Philippines named Aquino, and uh, has a lot of leverage with him because. Uh, so many Filipino uh, people are connected to Canada these days. So There's a huge connection between the two countries. There's a lot he could have done, and 
he didn't do. And he had plenty to say about Harper, who actually did do things like call LCC and things like that on the FAMI case. So it was a great double standard here. But I think to your point, uh, forget about the politics. What could have been done here? Well, do we have the JT2F, uh, you know, basically the Canadian version of SAS or the SEALs for the U.S., sitting idle? Our CF-18s are idle. We're hugging and loving all these different uh, people and, you know, giving them parkas, and it goes on and on and on. You know, if we kill them, they win. And here it is. Here's a real big boy issue right in front of the prime minister. What does he do? He's outraged. Well, get in line, pal. Yeah, well, we're all outraged. I mean, I don't th- I, I th- could we have sent them in and and rescued Richdale? I can understand deciding, OK, we don't want to do that because, well, maybe you put his life in danger. Maybe he ends up being executed as you're coming in. But now he's been killed. I understand Robert Hall is still there, but I think we have to send a message that says, if you mess with Canada, we will mess with you. That's that's well, that, that's the language these guys understand. Right, and that doesn't mean you have to do it, as you said. We have warships. You can put them up along the coast there. We have relationships. You definitely could get the JTF, two teams to work with the Filipino commando teams that are already in there. In fact, just recently they had a battle where... They took out 13 of these, uh, you know, kind of uh, Abu uh, Saraf uh, people. So, you know, it's not like, look, that's his job to be on top of it. Now, today you see him running out saying, well, and the whole narrative about, well, we don't negotiate with terrorists. Well, Bob Ray, who was a friend of Ritzdell and a former leader of the same party, said the opposite, that they did facilitate uh, negotiations between the family. I heard this with my, my own ears he said, and uh, they didn't come up with the money that these guys were looking for. So to say that the Canadian government is not involved, nudge, nudge, wink, wink, mm-hmm. in this is, is ridiculous. And then he comes out today and says, well, we don't negotiate with terrorists. Well, I'm sure Robert Hall's family would be happy to hear that, because now we're likely to get another head rolling down the street. So well, I, mean, I don't know. Look, uh, I, guess, I guess you liberals are all happy with it, but we try to call it straight here, what's going on, and these guys are in over their head. No question about it. We know that they negotiate with terrorists right. to a degree, and every government does, but they try and do it through intermediaries. And Evan Solomon had uh, Matthew Fisher on earlier. We'll be playing that interview again in a moment. But yeah, Ma- Matthew is Canada's really only war correspondent, goes around right. the world to all these hotspots. Matthew told me the other day, he's like, yeah, we, we negotiated to get Bob Fowler out. Absolutely, when our diplomat was there, and likely a ransom was paid. That's uh, Mercedes Stevenson about the JTTF people, you know. To, uh, in 2006 or seven, they were involved with going in and getting out that guy from the Sioux. I went up to the Sioux to cover it, like his name, Loney, James Loney, and the mm-hmm. other people. And, uh, you know, they were a big part of that. And they've done other extractions, too. So, look, at, I, I don't want to pick on the guy. I know it sounds like that's what we're doing, but it just bothers me when you've got to sit there and listen to this nonsense that somebody that doesn't understand the world who wants to sit there and tell you about the world and has never been anywhere or done anything except for be, you know, have it all kind of laid on for you and then have the audacity to go after uh, Prime Minister Harper before who tried his best and, and all that kind of stuff. So maybe well, I'm delivering a little bit of that, you know, other side of the story uh, so people can see that it's just because these guys are blowing smoke doesn't mean you have to smoke it. He's, look, he demanded that Stephen Harper pick up the phone 
and call Sisi over Mohammed Fahmy. He demanded that that happen, and here he says he didn't even call the Filipino president, who is not the, the, the party that was holding John Ridsdale. He is a friendly ally who's trying to fight back against these terrorist thugs in uh, Abu Sayyaf. Why wouldn't he call the Filipino president and say, hey, w- can you give me an update? What's going on? We'd like to know. But even when I remember when the uh, attacks happened in Paris, and I was busy with other things, and then I started to look at it, and then I looked uh, for the prime minister's response, the new prime minister at that time, mm-hmm. and there was nothing anywhere. And all I put on Twitter was, what did, he, what did he say about this? And, of course, all his defenders wrote. In fact, they, they had people you know, that I worked in the media with that emailed me and said I should take that down for my own good and my own reputation. And uh, so you know, they have their operatives, and the narrative is that you can't criticize this guy in the meantime. This Ridsdale character is dead, and you know what? He himself had pleaded for the prime minister to get involved in this, and he didn't listen to him. And so, you know what? Um, it is what it is. One day we'll need to get some serious people running the country, though. You, um, your column I've just uh, tweeted out moments ago, and I encourage people to write it as you talk about how um, Trudeau is parsing words, that he's just trying to be too political. Uh, if because you mentioned the uh, the whole issue of his response after after Paris, I, I, I'm about to post on Facebook. There's a video montage that I, I've done up of all his his responses over the last little while. And again, not picking on him for that. It's just I'm tired of the outrage, but more I'm tired of the jihadis running roughshod over the world, Joe. And I want a response that's whole. I don't even think the the coalition response to ISIS has been strong enough, and I didn't think it was strong enough back when Harper was in. I, I just think that we need to be out there saying, hitting back so that people that speak in terms of violence, understand terms of violence, that we speak to them in their own language. You know, and, and this whole narrative that it's not their fault and, you know, they're disenfranchised and they need a hug and all that. It's not true. It's ridiculous. And it's, it, it is, and down in that area there, in Mindanao. My wife is from Mindanao. So, you know, she's from two hours from there. It's too close. We can't even go visit there with our little boy and all that because it's too dangerous, which is sad. But these guys that do this down there, they bring in $25 million a year in ransom. So they're not poor. I'm sorry. $25 million a year. That's, that's their business down there. That whole region is, and there's only three or 400. There was 1,700 people down there that were part of this group. And now there's between three and four hundred. And here's the other thing: they're killing Filipino troops like crazy through the I, you know, the IEDs that we lost so many soldiers in Afghanistan. They've learned how to do that, and they're getting help to do that. They're also funneling some of that 25 million back to either Al Qaeda or ISIS, depending on on who they're. It's almost like they're a franchise of that. Well, they, they, they have pledged. Today. They've pledged allegiance to ISIS by now. Yeah, and, and I heard all kinds of experts on different shows today saying that that isn't so, and yet we've got all the pictures of them with the ISIS flag. So, you know, you have to figure it out yourself, folks, uh, who's telling the truth on that. These are very dangerous, ruthless killers. Uh, the prime minister is right to be outraged, but what he should do now is go get that Robert Hall out of there. And, uh, and if you have to do it by force, then you do it. And if you have to tell the Filipino prime minister you're going to help us do this with your troops, 
and that's well, what you do. But you don't sit they, back and let them cut another head off of a Canadian. Filipino Army in there right now. They say there's a lot of foliage. We'll get details from that from uh, from Matthew Fisher in a moment. Uh, Joe, thanks for the time. And uh, and as always, if folks want to read more, check out Joe's column on uh, on my uh, my Twitter feed. And Joe Warmington, you can read him in the Ottawa Sun, the Toronto Sun. Always worth the read. Thanks, my thanks friend. Thanks for having me, Brian. Thank right. you, everybody. Have a good night. Say hi to Matthew for me, too. Will do. Ciao. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. When we come back, we've got more on this issue, talking with uh, Evan Solomon's chat, part of it, with Matthew Fisher, my buddy and war correspondent, who's in Manila now. We'll bring you that. Back in moments. News Talk 580 CFRA. Some days, the resistance verges on rebellion. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. News Talk 580 CFRA. All right, you are going to want to stick around over the next little while. I've been teasing you about this for a little while. It's finally done. It's finally ready. If you follow me on social media or you're at the rebel.media on a regular basis, you may have seen this already. If not, I'll bring you the audio. The details on who really pays what in terms of taxes. Some of you will like it, some of you will not. But what I will bring you are the facts, because we keep being told, well, the rich don't pay their fair share. We'll show you what the reality is. Then I'll speak with uh, my socialist, my favorite socialist, uh, Rick Smith, from the Broadband Institute, will check in, and he's just down on the idea. He thinks the rich still aren't paying enough in taxes, even with Trudeau's tax hike. We'll get into that. Uh, and then later in the program, well, subsidies for... For rich people, look, I, I'm not out trying to get money out of you or the government for rich people, but I don't think you, I don't think you solve the country's problems by overtaxing people, and I also don't think you solve the the country's problems by giving subsidies to people with million dollar cars. We'll talk about that and forgetting Canada's history. Matt Gurney from National Post will join me about what's not in the plans for Canada 150. So that's all within the next hour. You don't want to go away. And, of course, top of the third hour, we'll get to your calls. If you want to email me before then, it's easy. Beyondthenews at CFRA.com. Beyondthenews at CFRA.com. Matthew Fisher is a friend of this program. Uh, He is Canada's only real war correspondent, in my view. We've had others come and go, but Matthew's been doing this for more than 30 years now, I believe. Uh, Matthew Fisher of No Fixed Address, I think, is how police would describe him if he were ever arrested, because where does he live? Well, uh, right now he's in uh, Manila in the Philippines. Last time I talked to him, he was uh, in Philadelphia waiting aboard a flight to Texas. Before that, uh, he was in Molenbeek in, uh, in Brussels. He's just constantly on the move and knows what's happening in the world. He was on with Evan Solomon earlier today discussing the issue of the killing of James Ridsdale. Ridsdale is someone that Fisher actually knew, and you'll hear that come out in the conversation. When you hear Prime Minister Justin Trudeau say that, um, not unexpected, but what message does that send? Well, I think it's doublespeak. Uh, I don't quite know exactly what he's trying to achieve by that, except to show that Canada... Uh, is in solidarity with a couple of countries such as Britain. 
not even sure now that the United States doesn't have uh, a ransom paying policy in some situations. Certainly, Germany and Italy uh, pay out money, and I have been told here. I listened to what Bob Ray had to say yesterday in television interviews from Canada. I uh, I listened to what the Prime Minister said a few minutes ago, and uh, there seems to be uh, an awful lot of space between those two answers. Uh, from what I know here, I have Filipino sources who have told me that Canada was discussing things uh, uh, with uh, Abu Sayyaf. Probably, by the sound of it, it was through an intermediary. And this is where you get into the semantics of the question. When is a negotiation not a negotiation? When is money paid that's not your money, but uh, you have facilitated the money in some way? Uh, there are all kinds of gray areas here. And so even when the prime minister said it was crystal clear, I don't think it is that crystal clear. Uh, it's uh, it's opaque. And uh, uh, Canadians, rumors have been out there for years about the mysterious liberation of prisoners. Melissa Fung of the CBC when she was held in Afghanistan. Right. Uh, Louis Gay, a, a diplomat, and Bob Fowler, a former ambassador to the UN, who were... Uh, uh, liberated uh, when they were in the southern Sahara and had been held for several months. Uh, I myself know from Iraq, uh, a Canadian of Iraqi descent was uh, kidnapped there, and uh, I, it turned out that he was a cousin, a first cousin of my fixer. And as he was the only one in the family who spoke English, he was the interlocutor with the Canadian government. Canada at the time said we didn't even have any diplomats in Iraq, but in fact, there was a Canadian diplomat not only visiting Iraq, he was based in Iraq, and uh, he was the contact point, and uh, uh, the, the fellow died, the, the fellow was abducted, but before that, my fixer, and fixers, if uh, your audience uh, don't know, they're the, they're the people often... Uh, very smart, well-connected people who assist you with doing interviews, who give you risk assessments, who translate things for you. The fixer said to me in disgust after spending a day on this where I couldn't work with him, he said, Canada's too cheap. They won't pay enough money. And I said, oh, but Canada was willing to pay some money. And he said, yeah, but not nearly enough. Uh, that's sort of what Bob Ray said yesterday. As I understand it here, uh, the dickering was done through a third party, and so that may let Canada off the hook. I'm speaking with Matthew Fisher. Now, you, you know, I, I know some of these situations as well. You know, the Melissa Fung, former jur uh, journalist who was kidnapped and others. You're right. There have been reports that many countries, maybe even Canada, and there's been some suggestions, have used an intermediary to try to release hostages and so this is the difficult thing. You got it in some ways. You can't do nothing. Do you talk to them? Is that negotiating with terrorists? If you're using an intermediary and you pay money, are you fueling a market for it? If you do nothing, do you sacrifice some people so in the long term there is not a market like this so people groups stop doing it? But in this case in the Philippines, uh, where the where this Abu Sayyaf is being attacked by the, the Filipino government as well. Uh, what's been the protocol in the past? Have Abu Sayyaf successfully in the past extracted ransom? 
They sure have. They have from an Italian hostage uh, and uh, from at least one, I think it was two, uh, German hostages. They've also murdered other hostage, uh, hostages that they've, uh, they've held. Uh, in fact, they've produced uh, graphic images of it. We have not yet seen that, and I hope we do not see that with uh, John Ridzel. But uh, uh, they are a very ruthless outfit. Uh, they have gained millions of dollars through abduction. And frankly, other than a few very rich companies, uh, uh, not many individuals have that kind of money. That, that money usually comes from government sources. Uh, we saw in the, uh, the Middle East and in Afghanistan with French and Italians who'd been held for very long periods of time uh, that uh, they uh, were released after uh, uh, the exchange of money. Uh, Jacques Chirac and people like that did not uh, seem to have uh, many qualms about this. Uh, American prisoners being held alongside French prisoners in Iraq have been uh, beheaded by Islamic State while others have been freed. And uh, what is the explanation when France is also involved in the bombing in the campaign in Iraq as the United States is? Why one and not the other? And of course, this leads to all these uh, uh, these allegations, all these rumors. It is an extremely murky situation. And I, as a friend of John Ridgedale, I wanted Canada to do everything they could for him. On the other hand, as a journalist who spent uh, several decades dealing with the scourge of terrorism, uh, I don't think governments uh, should appease these people because they just go out and kidnap again. It is a real problem, and I do not blame... Uh, this prime minister or a previous prime minister, no matter what they do, it is a horrible decision when you have the life of someone in your hands. Matthew Fisher speaking about the loss of a friend, what the government's doing, what they could do uh, earlier today in an interview. That's part of the interview with Evan Solomon. I'm sure you can find the full thing on the podcast page at CFRA.com. When we come back, I want to bring you something that I've been talking about for a little while. It took a while to get the production right. We wanted it to look just so. We wanted it to be something that you would want to share. We wanted it to be something that would stand out and stand up. And it does. Very proud of what we were able to produce over at the rebel.media on the issue of who pays what in terms of taxes. And what I'm going to bring you are numbers from 2013, before, before, Justin Trudeau raised federal taxes. You won't believe the numbers. They destroy the myth. They destroy the hype that people who earn a good wage don't pay anything in taxes. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. Back in moments. To you, he's rebellious. To official Ottawa, he's disdainfully insubordinate. You're listening to Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. If you are near a computer, a smartphone, a, a tablet, and you have access to my social media feeds, then what I want you to do right now is go to Facebook, or go to Twitter, or go to the rebel.media and find my video on taxes and share it. I am about to play you the audio from this, and we will continue to talk about it. 
But this is what I've been telling you about for the last little while, that I had numbers on who actually pays what in terms of taxes. We'll play you this audio, which debunks the leftist myth that the rich don't pay. And then you'll hear my interview with Rick Smith, the committed socialist from the Broadbent Institute. He still doesn't think that people pay enough taxes if they're high-income earners. So while you're listening to this, if you can do two things at once, I want you to go to Facebook and share this, facebook.com slash Brian Lilly, and share this video because I want to make sure that enough Canadians see this so that we can push back against false myths. You've heard socialists say it for years. You've heard the Occupy Wall Street type say it. And, well, recently, politicians of all stripes have declared the rich need to pay their fair share of taxes. But what is a fair share? And who's really paying the biggest chunk of the tax bill right now? I've got the numbers, and they might surprise you. There is a perception out there that the rich don't pay enough in taxes. Some think that high-income earners have so much money, they're able to find ways not to pay any taxes. But is that reality? The numbers, for Canada anyway, say no. In 2013, there were 27.1 million tax returns filed. But would you believe that just 2.1 million of those returns accounted for more than half of all the income tax paid? See, despite the rhetoric, high-income Canadians actually pay the lion's share of personal income taxes. Let me put this into hard salary numbers for you. There were 2.1 million people earning more than $100,000 per year in 2013. They make up just 7.86% of all tax returns filed, but they paid 50.89% of all taxes. The numbers actually become more skewed as you go up the income scale. People earning between $150,000 a year and $250,000 per year, they accounted for just 1.94% of all income tax returns filed, but they paid 12.52% of all income taxes. And then even more grotesquely, those earning more than $250,000 per year, well, they filed just 0.92% of all income tax returns, so the 1% in Occupy language, and yet they paid 20.65% of all income tax. Is that a fair share? Some still argue no. In fact, Justin Trudeau and the Liberals just raised taxes on top income earners claiming They don't pay enough. So this ratio that high-income earners pay, that's only going to go up. By comparison, people in the middle, those earning between $30,000 and $100,000 per year, their percentage of income tax paid was very close to their percentage of income tax returns filed. 43.65% of all returns filed and 46.37% of all income taxes paid. Those earning less than $30,000 accounted for 48.49% of all returns but just 2.7% of all taxes paid. Do you still think that high-income Canadians aren't paying their fair share? Do you still believe the hype? Because it's simply not true, and the numbers prove it. So when a politician tells you that the rich don't pay their fair share, they aren't telling you facts. They're giving you their opinion, a very ill-informed opinion. All right, there is the video, the audio of it anyway, You want to get the graphics. I know there's a lot of numbers in there. But if you want to see the full effect, then go to Facebook, facebook.com slash Brian Lilly. You'll find the video. Hit share. Don't hit like. Hit share. Why? 
because if you hit share, then it appears in your feed and your friends and family will see it and go, oh, this is interesting. Maybe they'll watch it. Maybe the, maybe they will pass it on. If you hit like, it doesn't have the same effect. So anytime that, that you see something on Facebook that you really want others to see, click share. We need to find a way to start pushing conservative messages again. And maybe you don't think this is one of them. Maybe you think, oh, well, you know, rich people should pay more in taxes. Well, that's fine. My point is they already do. When less than 8% of the population pays more than 50% of the tax bill, and you've got Justin Trudeau running around and everyone else on the left saying, yeah, but they don't pay enough. They need to pay their fair share. What is the fair share? What is it? Try and ask a leftist that. I'll ask Rick Smith. Not going to get an answer. Because the left, all they know is that they want more, 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 more. They hearken back to the glory days of FDR when the marginal tax rate for high-income earners was 90%. You earned $1 more, the government took 90 cents of that dollar. All that does is encourage people to sit on their money, to hide their money, to find ways to avoid paying taxes. Think of the people that could be hired if... Who hires? Does someone making $30,000, $30,000 a year, do they hire out other people? Do they hire a plumber to come into their house? No. Do they hire someone to look after other parts of their lives? No. High-income earners, if you take all their money away, eventually end up, they stop spending. The same with everyone else. The idea that people at the top do not pay their fair share is a myth, and we need to be pushing back against leftist myths. We'll continue doing that in my conversation with Rick Smith. That's coming up moments from now. Don't go away. But again, Facebook.com slash Brian Lilly. Share. Don't like. Back in moments. Every revolution starts with a rebel. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. News Talk 580 CFRA. The headline in the Toronto Red Star is Canada's left is having a moment. No, I don't think that the uh, the directors of the Broadband Institute that wrote this piece are talking about a seizure or a fainting spell or anything like that. I think the I think they feel pretty good about where the left is going in Canada. Let's check in with with Rick Smith, executive director over at the Broadband Institute. And uh, Rick, you you've just lost power in Manitoba. Your leader's been thrown out. How do you say that the left is having a moment? Well, you know what? Every every morning, uh, Brian, I, I, my clock radio goes off, and uh, you know the, the dulcet tones of uh, the CBC waft into my ear, and uh, it, it just—I'm it just, sorry just, about that. It just seems to me that uh, for the last year and the last few months in particular, most of the major headlines in this country, with, with few exceptions, uh, are centered on core progressive concerns. So. You know, just as a couple of examples, in Toronto, Black Lives Matter are making uh, important progress for um, uh, for racial uh, justice in Toronto. Uh, the, the the fight for a $15 an hour minimum wage is picking up steam across the country. Uh, the, the whole narrative about inequality and what we're going to do about it, uh, 
social investment in terms of infrastructure spending. These are all all core concerns of the left. The kinds of things we are not talking about are, you know, the hoary old uh, canards of the right, uh, you know, things like government retrenchment, tax cuts. These are not uh, what's on the agenda at the moment. You're listening uh, to the state broadcaster, Rick. I mean, uh, it is the most progressive broadcaster on the continent. So, yeah, I mean... There's a little bit of that in there. Well, there may be, but I also uh, do, you know, listen to uh, lots of private radio. I, I read the uh, the Sun newspapers and the Post every day, and you know, my point still applies. The the, the right is uh, retreating across the country in terms of its priorities. It's just not getting the airtime for the things that it cares about, like the left is. So I'm, uh, you know, regardless of the, the current electoral fortunes of the NDP, I'm feeling pretty bullish on, uh, on where the left side across the country. Uh, I, I won't disagree with you that uh, the right has lost its way in terms of winning the argument. Uh, that, was, that was writ large in the last federal election when um, I, I think a lot of conservative-minded people thought the argument over deficits had been won and that they didn't sell it properly. And and now we've got uh, the selfie prince ensconced in uh, the prime minister's office, and and he's spending lots of money. Although I'm not sure what the end result will be of his uh, deficit deficit spending. Well, I, I, I think that's the that is the sixty five billion dollar question, right? It is, it is, <laughs> so to what to what extent will the federal government spend the, this money? And it, and it is a substantial amount of money on projects that have. A measurable impact that uh, that reduce our carbon emissions that uh, allow people to get to work faster, versus you know sprinkling it like uh, uh, you know so much uh, leavening on uh, on important political areas of the country uh, based on their whims. I mean that's that's a huge question, and I think we have yet to see uh, the the answer to that question materialize. All right. I want to read out from a paragraph from the uh, the op-ed in in the Red Star, and and then I'm going to challenge one of the the central um, underpinnings of it. It says, "Why is this leftward tilt in our political discourse and public debate happening? One reason is certainly that in the wake of the recession and with rising inequality." environmental degradation and flagging employment impossible to deny the political left has momentum around the world and Canada is part of this tide uh, Rick where, where's this rising inequality coming from because when you look at the last decade and and David Aiken has run the numbers from the finance department uh, you know Bill Morneau goes back to 1982 to claim that uh, the rich got richer and the poor got poor but if we just look at the last decade something that we can discuss on in terms of whether policies, recent policies have helped or hindered, the bottom 90% saw an increase in their, this is after inflation, an increase in their uh, real income of 13%, whereas everyone in the top 1% saw a decrease. So where's this rising inequality that your side keeps talking about? Well, you know, look, I... uh... I don't need to lay out. I am going to lay out some numbers for you, but but I'm I'm sure that your listeners don't need convincing on this. They feel it in their gut. Uh, the, the fact of the matter but is, facts most, don't care most, about most, feelings. But but that but people's feelings are based on something, and uh, you know it's, it's not a surprise that most families across this country feel kind of stuck economically, and the reason is because in real dollar terms, 
uh, the average Canadian hasn't had a raise basically since the 1980s. The, the median income in this country, in real dollar terms, is eerily similar today to what it was in the mid-1980s. Meanwhile, uh, you know, the, the, the proportion of wealth in this country, uh, the proportion of income brought in every day by the top 1% of, uh, of earners uh, is basically at an all-time high. Uh, and, and this isn't – there's a reason for this. I mean, this is not a sort of inexorable law of the universe. This isn't like gravity. Uh, this is the result of deliberate political decisions to open up tax loopholes, for instance, that only the richest Canadians can, uh, can take advantage <laughs> okay. of. I, I, and I know. And meanwhile, I mean, here's, listen, you and I talk about decreasing taxes all the time. I am all for dropping the poorest Canadians off of the tax rolls. So why are we arguing about uh, CEO tax loopholes instead of the working income tax benefit that would drop uh, the, the poorest of Canadians right off the tax roll? That, if we want to talk about tax cuts, that's the kind of tax cut we should be talking about. Well, the, the poorest Canadians already don't pay taxes for the most part, and, and you know that, and I know that. Um, the fact is, and, and I know you've seen the video, the the vast majority of income taxes paid in this country come from a small set of people at the top. And this has to do with the structure of our tax system. And meanwhile, you and uh, other people on the left keep saying the rich aren't paying their fair share. When less than 8% of the population pays more than 50% of the taxes, how do you turn around and say, well, you got to pay your fair share, buddy. Come on. Well, I mean, thankfully, Brian, and... Uh... Uh, you know, the, the, the NDP in Alberta has done, uh, I'm actually in Calgary today, I mean, the NDP in Alberta has done great work finally bringing this in Alberta. We have a progressive tax system across this country. There's nothing progressive we, we, about we, it. We it expect, punishes hard we work. The premise, you know, we expect as a fundamental uh, premise in this country that if you got a billion dollars, if you make a billion dollars during the year, you should pay more as a percentage of that income than somebody that makes twenty grand a year. Okay. Right? First off, to uh, be in so, the one percent, you don't so need to be making a billion, Rick. And uh, whether you're paying a flat tax of ten percent or you're paying uh, a, a so-called progressive tax, the person making more money is going to be paying a heck of a lot more. Period. Right, but but the the point being, uh, number one, that if you are making a lot in income. Uh, for generations, we have uh, deemed it fair if you pay slightly more, not a lot, slightly <laughs> more as a percentage of your income. The other, the other uh, okay, uh, but but I've got to I've got to stop you there though. Here is that that is good for our economy. How richer people, richer people paying more in tax is good for our economy because um, we want people to. Our economy is driven by the the bucks that ordinary Canadians spend every day, the donut they buy at Tim Hortons, the hockey equipment they buy for their kids, the gas that they buy at the pumps, that is what churns our economy every day. And the fact of the matter is, if you're a billionaire, there's only so many donuts uh, at Tim Hortons that you can buy every day. And uh, you know, most, most of these richer Canadians end up socking their money away uh, and not recirculating it in the economy. So or, or they hire acting, people. Taxing rich people more is good for our economy. <laughs> okay. It's good for our economy. okay, final question, because uh, yeah. we're over time. And, and it's this. To, well, this to, you, topic. to you, what is 
a fair share of taxes because you said rich people should pay a little bit more. The top uh, rate is now 33%. The bottom rate's 15. The top rate's 33. And yeah. and in some provinces, you add on another 25%. What's a fair sh- uh, share of taxes? Is it 50% of someone's income, 60% of someone's income? Or, or do you want to go back to the good old FDR days of 90%? <laughs> the... Uh... Um, I think I think that might be out of reach at the moment. But uh, <laughs> at I the do, moment, I, where but you're working like on start, it. Where I would like to start, where we were writing about the Toronto Star last week, uh, you know, I would love it if if richer Canadians actually had an effective tax rate of 33 percent, but they don't. And the reason is because uh, earned income, like the, the bucks that you and I bring home every every day, earned income is taxed at a higher rate than things like capital gains, like things uh, like stock options. And of course, most Canadians, you know, have no idea what the capital gains uh, I'm, I'm asking, I'm asking the income tax rate. So, so the effective taxation rate for rich people is much lower than what you've just outlined. I, I'm asking income tax rate. What, what, sh- what is a fair share at the income tax rate? Uh, I, I think that, uh, that the, um, historic low in taxes that rich people pay should be reversed and should be bumped <laughs> up by modest amount. And I'm not going to, uh, okay. I don't have a number for you this morning, but more, more, more. is my, is my, is All my right. answer. There you have it. Rick Smith, executive director of the Broadbent Institute, a true socialist because he wants more of your money. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News on News Talk 580 CFRA. Insurgent. Believe it. The resistance is here. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. News Talk 580 CFRA. So if the country is celebrating its 150th birthday, don't you think that might include, say, celebrating a little bit of, I don't know, confederation? The thing that we were told that brought the country together, this is something that's insanely missing from the official plans of Canada's 150th birthday. This is something that was asked about in the House of Commons last week by Peter Van Loan to uh, the, uh, the heritage minister, Melanie Jolie. Confederation's not actually one of the themes. So what is? What are they going to be talking about? Matt Gurney in today's National Post writes, On Canada's 150th birthday, shouldn't we celebrate mm, Canada's birthday? I would have to agree with that. Gurney writes, Canada is not an old country. This July 1st will mark our 149th birthday. The federal government is already making plans to celebrate the anniversary that will follow a year after that, the 150th. It's a big round number and provides a welcome excuse, if any, were needed to celebrate Canada. But celebrate it how? More to the point, to celebrate what parts of it? Unfortunately, indications suggest the Liberals have opted to ignore the obvious focus on the anniversary. Confederation itself, 
and the astonishing progress Canadians have achieved since then in favour of four issues that are currently fashionable in progressive ranks. The environment, youth, inclusion and diversity. Oh, sorry, inclusion and diversity is one. And then the other one is and reconciliation with Native peoples. So these are the four issues that they're going to put out there as what we should be discussing, what we should be focusing on for Canada's 150th birthday celebration. The environment, youth, inclusion and diversity, and reconciliation with Native peoples. Is that really what Confederation was all about? Matt Gurney joins me now from Toronto. He's a... He's a columnist, editor at the National Post, and an all-around good guy. Matt, I'm perplexed by this. I would actually argue that um, a big part of Confederation 150 years ago was inclusion and diversity. Why wouldn't they be pointing that out? It's the wrong kind of inclusion and diversity. Um, You know... I was talking to somebody today. Uh, this is, it'll seem a little bit off topic, but it was someone pointing <clears throat> pointing out how I was a friend of mine who was Jewish, and he had Passover the weekend, and he had a his girlfriend there who was from a Catholic family, and they were you know they were exchanging parts of their culture, and you know he made the comment that you know for his family uh, of immigrant stock, that's a big multicultural moment, and then I thought to myself. Yeah, it is, I guess. But if you know, given the current cultural zeitgeist, you try to tell anybody that you know a white girl and a, a white guy having dinner together is in any way multicultural, they get laughed at, right? I mean, <laughs> the the fact that we had two peoples come together, the English and the French, in Canada and form a bi-national, bilingual federation was unprecedented. It's almost impossible to think of another country today. That would even function like that. I well, mean, you can point to Belgium, I guess, but not exactly a success story. Does that count as diversity? No. And I would actually argue, Matt, if if you pay attention to history and and you look at the symbols, you look at the flag of Montreal, you look at the crests engraved in the elevators on Parliament Hill and the doors mm-hmm. that I pass through uh, most days, they have not just the symbols of England and France, the rose and the fleur-de-lis, but they've got mm-hmm. the thistle and the shamrock because... Yep. Uh, now we just, oh, the Scots and the Irish, well, they're just the same as the English. Uh, one, try telling them that now, but really try telling the Scots and the Irish that they were the same as the English 150 years ago. Yeah, no, so completely. So we, we brought together people of different religions. We brought together people of different uh, ethnic backgrounds, linguistic backgrounds, and brought them together as a country. What's not to celebrate a, a, of that? We're one of the oldest democracies in the world. We predate Italy. We predate most of the nation states in Europe. And you can celebrate diversity today. You can you can talk about reconciliation with Aboriginals. You can celebrate multiculturalism and youth. You can celebrate all of the things that the Liberals want to celebrate, all the things that on their own merits are laudable and worth celebration, but you can root it in the original historical origin and make the point that Canada is a 150-year, I mean, or almost 150-year theory and experiment in the, the limits of tolerance and progress, and we're constantly redefining those limits. And rather than being ashamed that we didn't start exactly where we are today, we should instead look at that and say, this is just proof of how far we've come. And we have further to go, of course, but we'll get there. We've been getting there for 150 years. You know, look, I'm not a marketing writing guy. I don't write brochures, (laughs) but I don't think it would be particularly hard to write this one. You, 
you make the point that 150 years ago, Canada uh, wasn't the country we would want it to be today. You make the point that maybe today we're not the country we'd want it to be today. But look at the incredible progress we've made. Look at the number of firsts that we have had in Canada. I think we've got a few more firsts still to come. I don't know. It's it's not the end of the world, you know, but it's it's missed opportunity. And I think when the Liberals brought it up, Pardon me, when the conservatives brought it up, the, the liberal response was, well, they didn't want to bring in too much of the other stuff at the risk of politicizing the Confederation uh, anniversary. Brian, old friend, man, you know this as much as I do. What you choose not to bring up is as political as what you do bring up. George Etienne Cartier and mm-hmm. Sir John A. MacDonald, or yeah. sorry, Sir George Etienne Cartier, they were both knighted. They were a team that worked together to say, let's bring in French and English, and and forge a country. That's bringing people together. You had liberals and reformers and conservatives and old-style Tories, all kinds of people arguing for and against. I, I don't know if you've read the book. It's a little dry. I've recommended it to people before, but only if you're a complete history geek. Canada's founding documents. People on all sides. This is the, the actual debates from the legislatures that were commission to say, okay, go out and, and debate bringing Canada together. There there were passionate debates on all sides, and in the end, people came together. And, and, and what's wrong with, with recognizing that? One of the things that you noted in your column is that uh, Peter Van Loan, the conservative MP, former cabinet minister, asked Melanie Jolie to name four fathers of confederation, and she didn't even attempt it because you think that, like most Canadians, she couldn't do that. I, I, I couldn't go that far. I, I'll, I'll simply note I thought it was curious that she chose not to. I mean, there's a plausible explanation, perhaps. Perhaps she chose not to dignify the question with a reply. But honestly, if someone calls me out like that and says, I don't know what I'm talking about, maybe it's just my ego. I usually answer the question to prove the point. Maybe she's a bigger <laughs> person than I am. But no, or maybe, just hypothetically, maybe it's entirely possible that uh, Minister Jolie, like so many Canadians, too many Canadians, couldn't name four. And to be honest with you, I had to uh, rack my brain to be able to come up with four. And I was kind of embarrassed about that. And the funny thing is, up on my old shelf, I do have those debates of Confederation. And I agree with you, it's a little bit dry. It's been a few years since I've worked my way through it. But I kind of felt like maybe I should do it again. Um, You know, Canadians in general don't celebrate their history. And we're in a cultural moment right now where we are uh, questioning so much of what brought us to where we are. We are questioning who we are in so many ways. There's a degree to which that is healthy, whether you're talking on a personal level or a national level. It's a good thing from time to time to look back and reevaluate some decisions, and maybe you can avoid a a few future mistakes along the way. But, man, like, you are who you are, and the country is what it is because of how it got there. Uh, and if you were all proud of what it is, it wasn't all bad getting here. No, absolutely. We we wouldn't be where we are if we didn't have the past that was there. Let me ask you this. About a minute left. Um, I've always thought that Pierre Trudeau wanted to change so many of the symbols of Canada because he didn't like our history. He did not like the British roots of Canada. And I think that to some degree, Justin Trudeau is trying to follow through on that. You look at him trying to get rid of the Westminster-style parliamentary democracy first past the post. I think that's playing into this, including this decision. Your thoughts? I think there's probably some truth to it. It wouldn't be limited to just the prime minister or his father. There's a lot of Canadians out there. You'll remember this a couple of years ago when the Tories uh, restored uh, the royal designation to the Air Force and the Navy. They restored mm-hmm. some traditional um, uniform elements to the Army uniforms. 
that was controversial. The military loved it. Uh, historians or people with a historian's flair like you and I, we loved it because it was getting back uh, to the old school way of doing it. And I thought to myself, you know, my grandfather flew his missions in Europe serving the Royal Canadian Air Force and flying that flag. And he would have loved, even though he, he's been gone a few years now, he would have loved getting back to it. He never liked the unification of the forces. I thought it was great. As many people in this country, though, Brian, hated it. They just didn't like it because you hear it all the time. I mean, tweet a picture of the queen and remind people that she's <laughs> the queen of Canada. You'll see the responses yeah. go both ways. So people have very split feelings on this. The prime minister is entitled to his opinions. And you know, the system we have, that Westminster system you mentioned, he's a majority government. He can do what he want, uh, wants on this. It's just unfortunate, I think, even agreeing that you're never going to have a completely apolitical view of history. You're never going to get that perfection there are things all three parties federally should have been able to agree on. I would have thought making Confederation a centerpiece of the 150th anniversary of Confederation might have been one of them, uh, and I it, guess I was wrong. At least it's not recycling. I'll say this, Matt, and i got to leave it, is that um, one of the, my, my proudest moments as a dad, my, my 15-year-old was promoted to Lance Corporal a while ago. He's a corporal now, mm-hmm. but Lance Corporal, the old-fashioned designation, I loved hearing that. Thanks, my friend. Anytime. Take care. Matt Gurney, columnist, editor at the National Post. Do check out his piece on Confederation. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. Back next, Christine Van Gyne on subsidizing electric cars for rich folks. What? CFRA. Well, how much did you pay for your last car and how much did the government give you back? If you bought certain high-end electric vehicles or hybrids, then the government may have given you plenty of money back. Kathleen Wynne, under fire for this today. Why? Because of the good work of the people at the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Christine Van Gyne joins me now, Ontario Director. Man, oh man, Christine. Giving rebates to people that bought a million-dollar car. What planet does that make sense on? Well, it doesn't make sense on any planet in my books. I mean, we have five people in Ontario who bought the Porsche Spider 918. It's called the 918 because there were only 918 ever manufactured. And it's kind of, you know, a luxury collector's item for the billionaire class. And if you were lucky enough to buy one in Ontario, you got a rebate from Joe Taxpayer of $5,538. Well, you know, if you're spending a million one on a car, I think you need that rebate, right? Well, I mean, it's just the extra $5,000 that puts you over the edge. It just is just out of reach. <laughs> so this was all part of a program, and the government said, okay – was it earlier this year they decided to change it? Yeah, they changed so, it in February, but they haven't changed it significantly enough in my books. Well, in my books, the whole thing should be scrapped. But, you know, really the change eliminated about three cars from the list, and that includes the Porsche Spider. It includes this year's model of the BMW i18, which is over $150,000. But if you buy last year's model, it's $135,000, and you still get a $3,000 rebate. 
So really, the government needs to stop subsidizing vehicles for people who can afford a car that's worth more than most two-person household families' income for the year. It just doesn't make any sense in any world. I I, I don't know why we're giving rebates for any of these cars, quite frankly, because the fact of the matter is an electric car is a luxury. Even if you go for the low-end models, and I was looking this up today, the cheapest one I can find is the Mercedes, uh, what is it, 4.2? Smart 4.2, and that is just under $30,000 for a car that has no back seat. And then if you go into uh, a, just a compact instead of a mini, we're talking about $30,000 roughly for um, or $32,000 for the uh, the Chevy Spark. But the base model, if you go with the, the old-fashioned gasoline version, it's $11,500. So you're paying a, almost three times as much. If you can pay three times as much to make sure your car is an electric vehicle, Christine, I don't think you deserve any tax rebate because you obviously have the money. Why are we subsidizing rich people to have expensive cars? Yeah, if you can buy one of these vehicles, some of the least expensive ones are still in the range of of $30,000. The average car in Canada this year costs $27,000. So it, it is above what the average car would cost, but that's taking into account what the absolute high end is. And you know, you have a choice to buy the hybrid model or or not. And these are choices that you end up paying three times as much. You're absolutely right for some of these vehicles. But in the range of the luxury vehicles, in the range of the the Porsches, the Mercedes, the BMWs, uh, the, the Teslas, which are all in the $70,000 plus range, we're still giving subsidies of $3,000 to people who are buying $70,000 cars. And in the past Six okay. years, Th- we've those... given subsidies of $14 million. $14 million for cars over $70,000. Yeah, and I mean, that's outrageous. The average annual income in Ontario for a two-person household is $71,000. So, uh... <laughs> not, not many people I know are spending 70000 on a car. Let's put it this way. If you bought a, a $141,000 car, your rebate from the Ontario government is more than what I paid for the car I just drove down here in. Yeah, you mean you didn't drive here? You didn't drive in a spider today? No, Brian? no, no, no. I, you I, left I, that one in the garage? I did. I did. It, it's got to be waxed. The kids are a little <laughs> slow in waxing the spider this week. So, okay, that's part of the problem. But then I look at the other problem, and that is that you can look to the Ontario government, the Quebec government, the federal government. They're all looking at subsidizing these charging stations. And charging stations, unlike gas stations, gas stations are put up by private People, private money, companies, they want to get a return, and we all love to complain about gas costing too much. But the, the, the provinces are going to either subsidize these or mandate them. In the case of Quebec, every new home has to have an electric car uh, charging station. They're going to be subsidizing, again, what is a choice made by people that don't need government help. The government does not subsidize even the car choices of people on welfare, yeah, you know what they could do instead of subsidizing these charging stations is they could get electricity rates in Ontario under control because part of the huge cost of these vehicles is actually the electricity that's going to take to, to charge them. And in, in, in Ontario, we have some of the highest rates in North America. So bringing electricity rates in line would do more for these these people who drive these vehicles than um, than the subsidies for the charging stations. And it would do more to help everyone in this province to help regular 
people who drive their minivans to get their kids to hockey practice. These are the people that this government should should make the priority, not billionaires who can afford million-dollar cars. All right. Uh, the the premier seemed a little contrite earlier today. Uh, how do you feel about uh, her reaction to this story coming out uh, in the news earlier today? Well, the premier said that she she said the same thing that I'm saying that if you can afford a million dollar car, you probably don't need a five thousand dollar subsidy. Which begs the question: She knew that they were getting them. She knew for six years that they were getting these subsidies. Why didn't she change it before then? It, it's not a secret that the Spider was on the, the list of cars that got an electric vehicle rebate. And if she thinks that that's unreasonable, why doesn't she think it's unreasonable to, to why doesn't she think it's unreasonable that she's giving a subsidy for a $135,000 BMW i8? That's still getting a subsidy. This is a policy that needs to change immediately. All right, Christine, thanks for the time. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Christine Van Guyen is the Ontario Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. You can follow them at taxpayer.com. You can follow me at, uh, well, beyondthenews at cfra.com or facebook.com slash Brian Lilly. We'll be back in moments. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. Join the resistance on Facebook and Twitter at CFRA Ottawa. So as we speak, Donald Trump is sweeping all five states in the the Republican primaries. Hillary Clinton taking three, Maryland, Pennsylvania, and I believe Delaware. Rhode Island looks like it's going to Bernie Sanders. Sanders is considering whether to reevaluate his campaign after a loss today. And the Republicans turn towards Indiana. New Mexico, and Oregon. you have any thoughts on American politics, willing to take your calls, willing to listen? Right now, I want to open up the phone lines, though. 521-TALK, 521-8255, star 580 on Bell Mobility. Brought you some interesting facts earlier about who actually pays the tax bill in Canada. And I hope that if you haven't yet, that before you close your eyes tonight that you will take the time to share that video on social media, to email it to a friend, to tweet it out, to post it on Facebook. And if you're one of the 12 people still on Google+, which I keep trying to remember to post there, then post it there. Because we need to push back against these myths. High taxes are bad for everyone. Low taxes are good for everyone. High taxes, that's what the left wants. And they want, they want to divide and conquer with this class warfare mentality. The language of Occupy Wall Street about the 1% and paying your fair share, it worked out well for Kathleen Wynne. It worked out well for Barack Obama. It worked out well for Justin Trudeau. All of them used the language of Occupy Wall Street to win their elections, claiming that You know what? The problem isn't that the government spends too much. The problem isn't that the government spends money on the wrong things. The problem is that those rich people aren't paying enough and we need to take more of their money. Showed you earlier tonight. 50.89% 
of all income taxes collected in Canada come from less than 8% of the tax filers. Now, Rick Smith from the Broadband Institute, he wants to distract. He wants to talk about capital gains tax, dividends, stock options. Do you know what happens when you raise the capital gains tax? Government takes less money. When you lower the capital gains tax, government takes more money. I remember Barack Obama being asked about this because he advocated for a higher capital gains tax. So you sell stocks, you sell a business, you sell something, an investment. The money you make is your capital gain. Capital gains taxes used to be very high, and the amount of money governments took in was lower. Starting in the United States, it was under Ronald Reagan. Here it was a bit later. Governments in this continent started to say, okay, let's lower the tax rate. Let's encourage people to sell and reinvest. We'll get more money, and it's also good for the economy. People are active in the economy. They're selling, they're reinvesting. People are trading businesses. This is a good thing. Government revenues went up. Barack Obama was asked this by a reporter in an interview. Aren't you worried that you'll get less money? And he said, it's not about the money. It's about fairness. He didn't care if the government got more money or less money. He just wanted to stick it to people with money. 521-TALK, 521-8255, star 580 on Bell Mobility. That is the issue of the left. You have money, they want it. I remember discussing the issue of income splitting with Rick Smith of the Broadband Institute. And a question he's never answered for me, and I've asked him it several times, was he kept saying, well, if we bring in income splitting, it will cost the government money. And I said, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Income splitting is a form of a tax cut. How is that going to cost the government money? Well, we won't have as much money. Is the money my money or is it the government's money? Whose money is it? See, to people that are on the progressive side of the aisle, and I will not stop calling them progressives because I've got to make people understand that progressivism is not good for you. They make it sound good. It's not. To the progressives, your money is what they allow you to keep after they take their cut. And their cut is always going to be bigger. And you can move it up. You can increase it. And they will still want more. Under FDR, the marginal tax rate was more than 90%. Or sorry, was 90%. And you heard me ask Rick Smith that. Well, what, what do you think? Should it be, should the marginal tax rate be 90%? He said, well, I think that's out of reach for now. Well, partly, I think what Rick was joking. We have a... Uh, we have a bit of fun on air, back and forth, taking shots at each other. But don't think for a second that if they could get there, they wouldn't. Thomas Sowell, the well-known economist, great writer, you want to educate yourself on economics, read Thomas Sowell's columns. He's put out books. He's put out collections of his columns in books. And he was asked what the effective or what, what's the best tax rate? What should the tax rate be set at? And he said, 
10%'s good enough for the Baptist Church, which is the church he was a part of. 10%'s good enough for the Baptist Church. It should be good enough for the government. 10% flat rate tax. Get rid of deductions. Get rid of all these expenses that people can take. 10%. If you're making $100,000, that means that you're paying $10,000 in taxes. If you're making less, it means you're paying a lot less. You're paying twenty thousand. You're paid twenty thousand dollars. Well, I don't know. Maybe they're not taxing you on the first fifteen. If they're not taxing you on the first fifteen thousand, which is roughly where it is now, then you're paying about five hundred dollars in taxes. So the rich guy's still paying more. But to the left, it's all never going to be enough. They always want more money. Justin Trudeau's new rate on top top income earners is thirty three percent. The effective marginal tax rate, well over 50% for those people now. Well over 50%. So they earn a dollar, more than half of it goes to the government. What kind of incentive is that for hard work? You have thoughts. 521-TALK, 521-8255. And I will note, and this goes back to the interview you just heard uh, with Christine Van Gein from the uh, Canadian Taxpayers Federation, the Ontario director, They don't seem to have a problem giving subsidies to rich people. They just don't want them to have their own money. Kathleen Wynne didn't cancel this $5,000 rebate for people buying a million-dollar car until it became an issue. They were doing this for years. It's like I remember asking both Jack Layton and Stefan Dion when they were leaders of the opposition parties, why did they oppose tax cuts? Well, because corporations need to pay more. But at the same time, they advocated for the government to take money from you and give it to certain corporations because they wanted subsidies. If it moves, tax it. If it keeps moving, regulate it. If it stops moving, subsidize it. That's the way of the left. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. You want to join the conversation? 613-521-8255, star 580 on Bell Mobility. You can email me, beyondthenews at CFRA.com. You're listening to the leader of the unofficial opposition, the rebel himself. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. Okay, so... I'm just going to compare myself to the people across the street for a minute. During the break at the 9 o'clock news, I went out to see if I could grab a snack. I'm just, you know, was starving. Not really a whole lot. There's a lot of good food in the area, but nothing that is overly quick and still not too bad for you. So I end up with a bag of chips, salt and vinegar. Can't complain about salt and vinegar. Love them. But now I'm sitting here having eaten a bag of chips and I'm looking across and I see a guy on a stair climber, a couple of people on ellipticals, a woman going very fast on a rowing machine, and then a whole pile of people. I can just see bodies behind them. That's what's going on at the gym across the street. Not that I'm feeling inadequate after eating a bag of chips, but oh well. I'm asking you about taxes. What is a fair share? What should the tax rate be? For the wealthy, some of you will say they don't pay enough, they can hide all their taxes. That's baloney, and I've shown that and I've proven that. And if you want to watch the video, it's at therebel.media. It's on my Facebook page, facebook.com slash Brian Lilly. 
We're on Twitter, twitter.com slash Brian Lilly, like I always say. like to keep it simple for people. What is a fair share? What is an appropriate tax rate? 521-TALK, 521-8255, star 580 on Bell Mobility. Peter in Ottawa, you're on Beyond the News. Yes, hi, Brian. Um, I just read recently that there's 45 million people in the United States that don't pay a penny of tax, and I'm, I'm sure that there's a, an equally shocking number in Canada as well. Are, are they all rich or what? <clears throat> well, it's just uh, the number just jumped out at me. I saw yeah. it on Drudge, and it's just... It's an inconceivable high number, 45 million of a population of a three. But in Canada, we also have a similar problem. But I'm not sure that the the issue really is is uh, what the appropriate tax rate should be. As to um, uh, what was the, the point I was going to make? Um, well, the, the wealth concentration is not as bad in Canada as it is in the states. But I still think that it's uh, it's uh, it's too high here. And uh, absolutely, there's I think it's one percent of Canadians own something of 14% or 15% of all the, the wealth in the country. Um, well, I don't they're, they're paying taxes. 20% of the taxes. I've heard today, well, we, I've heard everything from 10% to uh, 14%. Yeah, and that's part of the problem is it's really getting, uh, you know, a trustworthy and definable objective data that's publicly available for everyone to see. And I have a, I have a very great fear that the government is, is fearful of unleashing class war, warfare if they start being honest and, and telling us the, the true facts. But even in the Globe and Mail, there's some, some very good writers who have basically telling us the cat's out of the bag and that Canada's been living beyond its means for a very long time on borrowed money. And uh, it can't go on. We're already seeing the problems now with the um, with the dysfunction in the electricity markets and uh, people are calling it a scam, which I believe it is. I believe they're rigging the system to use the hydro system as, as a cash cow. Uh, the health care system is being uh, being gamed as well. There's uh, there's all kinds of issues that uh, people, you know, the governments are uh, are very reluctant to uh, to, uh, to publicize uh, for for fear of um, you know not being reelected. I mean, all we well, had to do. Look, is make- St- Stats Canada tracks an awful lot of this. Um, there are government departments that are never friendly to whoever's in power that track these things, and I've detailed it over the years. The fact is, and David Aiken did a great job on this a little while ago. Uh, you can follow him online. He he's posted it on his uh, blog at uh, the uh, Sun Media website. Uh, the fact is, uh, over the last ten years, the people at the top have done worse. They've seen their incomes go down, while the people in the bottom, ninety percent, have seen their incomes go up. Correct. So. Right. I mean, th- this is from government numbers. It's not his own numbers. This is from the finance department. Um, yeah, and no, and I, I, point, I, I, I pointed this out to Rick, and he just, well, I could give you my own numbers. Then he didn't, you know, because he just wants to unleash class warfare. The, the yeah. fact is that the class warfare is being unleashed by wealthy champagne socialists like Rick Smith, like right. Justin Trudeau, like Tom Mulcair. These guys are all you know, making well into the six figures and trying to get elected by making you angry that somebody else is making more money. Yeah, I mean, it's it's it's, it's pretty obvious to most people who, who spend and, you know, uh, pay attention to it. But I, I think the issue basically is, is well, it's, it's not um, it's not the amount of money that we're being taxed. It's it's the ways our money are being uh, is being spent. And of course, that's what the conservatives have been saying all over all over the world for years. It's 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 uh, it's a spending problem. Um you know, when imagine if your gas tank had a big, huge hole and you went and filled it up with gas every day, and you know, 30% of it fell onto the floor, you'd be pretty upset. But 
you know, uh, oh, well, it's not your car, and, uh, you know, let's wink, wink, nudge, nudge. But this is the problem. It, you know, things are coming to a head now, and, uh, you know, the job creation uh, programs of the future are, are, are going to look nothing like they were in the past in Canada and the United States. And this is the, this is the anxiety in the transition period that North America is going through, and I Western Europe as well. It's just that all the traditional jobs um, are, are essentially being you know, dissolved uh, before your eyes uh, through technology, and that's going to be the big, uh, you know, the big puzzle, uh, how governments are going to solve that and, and keep people from, uh, you know, just keeping people calm and keeping people, you know, carrying on, as they say. Yeah. But, okay, let me throw this out at you. People say, tax the rich, it helps the poor. If you tax someone who earns, uh, let's using one of the numbers that was in the, the video, and, and please go and check out the video if you haven't, someone earning more than $250,000 a year, and I think that roughly corresponds with Trudeau's increase in the tax rate. If you tax them and take even more of their money, then... These are people who are likely high-income earners who work a lot of hours, and then they turn around and they hire someone to, I don't know, clean their pool or uh, look after their lawn. They hire companies like Neutralon that you hear ads for here on CFRA. If they turn around and they say, okay, well, I don't have as much money now. I've got to cut back. Where are they going to cut back? They're going to stop going to restaurants, which hurts people. Where? At the bottom. They're going to cut the lawn service or the pool service. All these contractors that rely on people that have money to cobble together a business. Exactly. You're absolutely right. And it's a very important thing that the government has to get right, getting getting right that balance, because that's a a very obvious point. But my point, Brian, is that I think there's a tremendous um, number of people in Canada that don't understand these basic economic constructs. And uh, they have no working knowledge of, of, of these basic things. And that's a failure of the educational system. Which, that we're not, uh, which is you know, why I, I put out, I, I think it's the most educational video that I've done for the Rebels so far. Uh, it took time to get the script right, took time to get the graphics right. So I really hope that you and everyone listening goes and checks it out and shares it. Via, and, and I hope to do more in the future because we've got to take back the narrative that, that the left has been able to conquer that says the answer is punish other people so you can do better. Um, you yep. know, that that's not the answer at all. Thanks for the time, Peter. Uh, Got to run. We're up against the clock coming up to the news. Don't go away. More of your calls. 521-TALK, 521-8255, star 580 on Bell Mobility. Brian Lilly, Beyond the News, back in moments. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. Join the resistance on Facebook and Twitter at CFRA Ottawa. I'm asking you what you think tax rate should be for wealthy Canadians. You heard my uh, report earlier today, and I encourage you to go and watch the video if you haven't. You can find it at facebook.com slash Brian Lilly. It, it shows that contrary to the position of Justin Trudeau and everyone else on the left side of the aisle, all these people that claim the rich don't pay their fair share. Less than 8% of the people pay more than 50% of the income tax. Less than 8% of the people pay more than 50% of the income tax. And David Aiken, and I'll bring up these numbers in a moment, David Aiken has already shown, using finance department numbers, that the bottom 90% saw their incomes rise over the last decade, while people at the top, 10%, saw their incomes go down. 
Now, this all puts me in mind of Mar- Margaret Thatcher and her comments on socialism. And I want to play this, and then we'll get to your calls. And if you want to join the conversation, 521-TALK, 521-8255, star 580 on Bell Mobility. And if you're out of town, it's 1-800-580-CFRA. That's 2372. But Margaret Thatcher is famous for saying the problem with socialism is eventually you run out of other people's money. I'm not sure she actually said that. It's often attributed to her, but I've had trouble finding her saying that on video. And, you know, this is a woman who was in power for a dozen years, and so much of what she said was captured by television cameras. But towards the end, as she's getting ready to leave politics, she was in Westminster for Prime Minister's Question Time, and she's being questioned by a Labour member on the issue of what we're talking about now. Is the gap between the the rich and the poor getting worse? And we need, you know, people at the bottom need more, blah, blah. I want you to hear the question and then hear her answer. There is so much truth in her answer. I give way to the Honourable Gentleman. There is no doubt that the Prime Minister has in many ways achieved substantial success for the economy. There is, there is one statistic that I understand is not, however, challengeable, and that is that over her 11 years, the gap between the richest 10% and the poorest 10% in this country has widened substantially. How can she say at the end of her chapter of British politics that she can justify many people in a constituency such as mine being relatively much poorer off? much less well-housed, and much less well-provided than it was in 1979. Surely she accepts that is not a record that she or any Prime Minister can be proud of. Mr Speaker, all levels of income are better off than they were in 1979. But what the Honourable Member is saying is that he would rather the poor were poorer, provided the rich were less rich. That way you will never create the wealth for better social services as we have. And what a policy. Yes, he would rather have the poor poorer, provided the rich were less rich. That is a liberal policy. Yes, it came out. He didn't intend it to, but he did. Isn't that the truth right there? They would rather the poor be poorer as long as the rich are less rich. That's what it comes down to. In his budget, Bill Morneau published a a chart showing average annual growth in real family income 1982 to 2013. He went back to 1982 so that he could show that the bottom 90% saw real income growth of less than 1%. But the top top earners, the top 0.01% saw real income growth of more than 3%. All right, well, David Aiken, my old colleague at Sun News, asked for the finance department numbers and said, let's look at 2005 to 2013, basically the Harper decade. What what are those numbers showing? They show that the bottom 90% saw real growth, the top 1% saw marginal growth, and that top 0.01% saw their incomes go down. So, from 2005 to 2013, the bottom 90% 
saw their incomes go up by 13.42%. The top 1% saw a decrease of 0.55%. The top 0.1% saw a decrease of 10%. And the top 0.01%, the uber-rich, they saw their incomes go down, real income go down by 13.93%. And yet the left continues to say the rich are getting richer, the poor are getting poorer. The rich aren't paying their fair share. They're, they're paying the majority of the tax. None of this is based in reality, and it goes unchecked. Do you have thoughts on any of this? 521-TALK, 521-8255, star 580 on Bell Mobility. Dave in Ottawa, you are on Beyond the News, Dave. I was going to comment on uh, that crazy socialist there, but the, the previous caller did a pretty good job. <laughs> well, go, like, go ahead and comment away. Where where does he come from? Well, what world he, is he living in? It's not my world. I, I mean, he he talks as if everything everything is is, is all wrong, and I, I need a, everybody to guarantee me something, and I, I'm terribly terribly poor without it, and on and on and on, and I'm thinking, listen, the world is fine. Don't screw it up. Do, what do you think? Let me ask you this. I couldn't get an answer out of Rick Smith. The top tax rate on wealthy Canadians is 33%. That's just the federal rate in some provinces. In Ontario, it's not too bad. Across the river in Quebec, it's over 25% it's on top of the 33 In Newfoundland, I don't know why anyone with money lives in Newfoundland. I don't know why anyone with money lives in Quebec. Um, but what do you think the the tax rate should be? Do you think do you, do you believe the myth that the rich don't pay their fair share, Dave? No, I don't believe it at all. And what, what would happen is that the more you pressure them, the more people are going to look for ways to avoid taxes, whether it's tax loopholes, rearranging their finances, hiding it offshore, uh, whatever, whatever. People are creative enough that if pushed hard enough, they'll find a way. I don't blame them. I mean, if you're if you're paying $50,000 a year in taxes and somebody says you've got to pay more, wouldn't you try and say, you know what, I, I think I've paid enough. I think I've got to, to find a way to, to shelter some of this so that me and my family are looked after or so that I can spend the money the way that I see fit. You know it would be really horrible? If, if What they want is they want everybody to be poor. Well, if everybody is poor, the economy would drop like a stone because no poor people can afford to buy stuff. Hire people, invest money, start companies, nothing. If we're all poor, it's going nowhere. You know, and, and that is part of what I wanted to get across. If you are in that, you know, if you're making less than, than $30,000 a year, then you and everyone in that range, you contribute 2.7, I think it is, 2.7 or 2.73% of the national income tax revenue. Fine. Not expecting people at the bottom to be paying the majority. That's not the point. But if everyone's down there, you're right. How do you hire somebody? You know, I, I, I'm looking at hiring somebody right now. If I was making $30,000 a year with the three different jobs that I'm doing right now, my three different clients, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to afford to hire anybody. And nobody earning that money can hire somebody to work for them to give them a job. I was talking to a, a brick mason. On, on the weekend, he was talking about trying to hire somebody. If, if he's a brick mason making only thirty forty thousand dollars $40,000 a year, he's not going to be able to hire an assistant 
to make his business more productive. And especially if they want the person he hires to be making just the same amount of money that he is. Well, exactly. So, I mean, it doesn't make sense to me at all, but... Uh, That's capitalism. This, Capital greases the machine. And, and And the fact is, and Fraser Institute had a good video out on this recently, they, they showed that in, people move up and down the income ladder. When you're just starting out, you're not making a ton of money. Very few people anyway are. And then you increase your skill set, you increase your value to either clients or to your employer, you make more money. And then you get into your retirement years, guess what? You likely make less money. That's what's happening to me right now. Hmm. So, I'm going down by to the tune of forty-seven percent in, in retirement. Big, in retirement years, that yes, mm-hmm. I, I'm one of those wealthy government employees. <laughs> you see, if you could meet that formula of thirty-five, eighty-five, whatever that formula is to make up the age plus years of experience, you can retire with seventy percent of your of your salary. Now, if you're if you're poor schmuck making forty-five thousand. Seventy percent, you can probably live on. Mm-hmm. But I'm not one of these big guys who's making two hundred and thirty and retire at seventy percent of that. I don't make that formula. I'm going to retire on forty-seven percent of my salary. Yeah, and and, rich, and, good, and good government, rich schmuck, I am. And that's tough to do. I don't care whether you're a government employee or a private sector employee. That's tough to do. Exactly. Uh, but some of these. Some of these guys have pensions that um, the rest of us would only dream of, right? Indexed for life. Well, se- mine is indexed, but it's so very small. Seventy percent of your best five years, and, and and you know that the guys at the top get a promotion for the last year or two of their yeah. uh, of their time. And, and I'm going to we, be taking. We know that it happens. Forty about forty-seven percent of my best five years. Oh wow! And when my best five year is under fifty thousand, you know what that means? It it's going to be a rough go. Dave, thanks for the call. All the best. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. We'll get to your calls in moments. 521-TALK, 521-8255, star 580 on Bell Mobility. hated in official Ottawa, which is okay in our books. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. On May the 7th, you want to meet up in person, I'll be speaking to the breakfast for the Canada Carleton Conservative uh, Association, their Electoral District Association. I believe it's happening at the Don Cherries on Hazeldine Road, but um, you can find information at the the website of the Canada Carleton Conservatives Association. Uh, love to see you there. That's Saturday, May seventh, eight thirty in the morning, I believe. I'm up early to get out there. Going to be some bacon, going to be some eggs, going to be some join, and uh, a bit of time to meet and greet and chat. Uh, to the phone lines and your thoughts on where taxes should be, Mike in Ottawa. You are on Beyond the News. Hi, Brian. Hello, Mike. Yep. Hi. Uh, um, a little while back, I was saying, um, as of 2003, if you went by the median income, 50% of people, of Canadians, made under thir- under $50,000 a year. 
70% of that 50% made under $30,000 a year. The person you just had on the recording you played in regard to taxes mm-hmm. was saying that 48% of tax returns... Now that, that was me saying that. Okay, yeah. So 48% of tax returns, you're saying, are filed by people making under 30000 a year. And at the time I told you about that 70%, you were saying, no, 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 that's not true. So the 48% represents that. It's well, very close. So the... Tax returns include everyone that's working full-time, part-time, getting a government subsidy, government pension on a government program. It's all of that. The average for a full-time working Canadian is about $47,000 a year. No, no, it isn't because you can't go by the average. The average working full-time Canadian, that's Canada. But you can't go by the average, Why not? The average average scoos is scooed. Because you're well, not taking skewed by the, the high and the, the low. Empires, people making over 150000 a year. And, and the people making $10,000 a year. Yeah, but people don't make I'm talking people working full-time. Yeah, people working full-time don't make 10000 a year. Okay, you want to go by the median? The it median. Is, it is closer to that. It's closer to that than it is to 30000 No. My, I, my, okay, I Mike, most people, Mike. Most Canadians make under 30000 a year. Oh, bull crap. No, most people in the service industry, what are they getting paid? Minimum wage. And a lot of people work in the service industry. What do you think the tax rate should be? Well, I, I think that people making under 30000 a year should pay no taxes at all. I don't think that they should tax the rich per se. What they need to figure, it's not about taxes. It's about figuring out how to m- more evenly distribute the wealth. And that's not what happens. How do you distribute wealth? I, I, if I work harder than somebody else, do you then turn around and say, well, you shouldn't have that money? Give it to somebody else? Give it no. to your brother or sister that doesn't work as hard? No. What I'm saying, what I'm saying, I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is people need to have more opportunity to be able to work their way up. And that's not happening in our society. The, what is the, capitalism the, about? What is the goal of capitalism? It, it, it is the freest and fastest way to move money around the system and give people opportunity. No, the goal of capitalism is to extract as much profit as I can with as little expense as I can. Okay. So, the better so what's I wrong get with that? Being a capitalist, okay, what happens is capitalism becomes communism. Okay? All the wealth is concentrated in the hands of a few, and the rest of the population live in poverty. And that's what's happening more and more and more. The media, we have to find the, a way to even the playing field. Well, how do you do that without taking people's money by force, Mike? Uh, I don't know. The if median, I had the, the answer to that, I wouldn't be on a pension. The, the median family income in Canada, this is the median family income, not the average, $76,000 per year. This according to StatsCan, a story published in September 2013 uh, from the Canadian Press. It's on the CTV website. They're saying the median income, $70,000 a The year. median family income. So there's no, there's no way. That's $76,000 a year for the median family income. No, no. They're, 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 they're fudging the stats wow. for their own political means, and they do it all the time, especially the liberals. All right. Got to grab some more calls. Okay. Thanks for the call, Mike. Let's go to Rick in Orleans. You're calling in about income tax, sir. You're on Beyond the News. Oh, 
my God, this dude that you just talked to, he, I've heard him, you know, I've heard him, you know, for the last years. Mm-hmm. He's a little uh, out there. Would you not agree? Well, everyone's got their own opinion, and he happens to, to, to have a different one than mine. I welcome all on the show. No, so. I know, I know. I, I get and, it. And you heard it. that I disagreed. Anyways. I'm not going to insult. I'm not going to insult no, Mike or anybody else. I'm not insulting him at all. I I actually forget, forgot what I called about because it's taken so long to get on to you or to your uh, news again. But I figure basically it's about, you know, Mr. Trudeau, because it's always about Mr. Trudeau. <laughs> well, you, you called in about income tax. Uh, I did call. Correct? Okay. So there, what should the go. tax rate okay, be? Good. Good. That's good, because I worked for CRA for 34 years. And, you know, these dudes that are complaining about the rich people not paying their fair share, it's all a bunch of hokey, because they they are paying a whole lot of income tax. Mm -hmm. I know that, because I worked in the industry for 34 fucking years. Use my my language, 34 years. In any case, I'm paying 23% on my bottom line on income tax. I got no problem with that. And uh, I just know that there's not a lot of dudes in Canada getting away with not paying their fair share. It just doesn't happen. Thanks for the call, Rick. Got to get to one more before time's up. Let's go to Marty in Gatineau. Marty, you're on Beyond the News. You got less than a minute. Go. Hey there. Um, I'm just wondering what your opinion is on people on welfare, whether they're poor or they're being helped by the government. Well, because um, in Quebec, when you're on welfare, you can go to therapy twice for, let's say, drug abuse, which is about like four to five thousand dollars each therapy paid by the government. The Hep C people, uh, people that have Hep C, get paid a seventy thousand dollar treatment, which they get the cure. Yet they still blame the rich for not giving to the poor. So I, I'm kind of mixed up. I uh, okay. Let let me put you on hold, and I'll give you a quick response before we run out of time. But um, what do I think of people on welfare? It depends. Some people need to be there because they're in a bad spot. Some people are there, and they're going to milk the system and complain about it. The people that are going to milk the system and complain about it, I have no time for them. The people that are going through a rough patch, that's what the system is there for. And if you follow the stats, people will go up and down the income ladder throughout their time. We have a social safety net in Canada. So be it. We need it not to be a hammock so that people feel comfortable. You don't want people to be so comfortable that they say, you know what, I won't get up off the couch and work. You need people to say, I want to do better. You need people to say, I can contribute to society. As far as some of these these health benefits, some are probably not generous enough and some are overly generous. It depends on where you're at. And I don't fully understand the system in Quebec because I haven't dealt with that before. So I'll leave it there. Thanks for the calls. Thanks to all of you. Thanks for listening tonight. Share what you hear on social media. Spread the word. Thanks for listening. Remember, I'm on your side.